Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. A look at the book of Revelation that we're filming during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And one of the reasons why we started this series going through the book of Revelation is that way back in March, almost seven months ago now, almost the day uh, from the time we're filming this episode, as soon as people started to get sick in large numbers and, and society started to shut down, um, we, I started to see on, on social media and, and other places Christians sharing passages of Scripture uh, that deal with apocalyptic themes, that deal with the end times, that deal with Christ's return. Except I almost always saw them being shared in a way that was meant to frighten people, either to frighten unbelievers uh, or even to frighten believers uh, into obedience. And I think when we do that, we really miss the point of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written to believers not to scare them, but to comfort them to provide that certain comfort in whatever uncertain times they're living in. Uh, it, during these end days, during these, uh, these end times between the two comings of Christ, as we encounter persecution and war and famine and plagues uh, and the revolt of creation with natural disasters and whatever else we might be experiencing, we are comforted with the certainty of the cross, we are comforted with the certainty of Christ's sovereignty, and we are comforted with the certainty of his return. And so we haven't spent a lot of time uh, over these past months uh, looking at the book of Revelation, trying to figure out all the one-to-one correlations with all the symbolism throughout the book, uh, because that's not really the point. Uh, the point isn't to understand every single symbol in the book, but again, to understand the certainty of the cross of Christ's sovereignty and of his return. And that's so important for us to keep in mind in the passage that we will look at today, the second half of Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Because this passage in particular has been brought up, especially uh, more recently during the, the pandemic. Uh, and as we have um, started to, to go to online shopping uh, as a vaccine, has been in the works, and there's been all kinds of things all over the place by Christians asserting that that this person is the Antichrist or not, that this vaccine is the mark of the beast or not. And there's long been an obsession with this mark of the beast throughout church history. But again, when we, we focus on the, the symbolism too much, we miss the underlying message that the book is trying to give us. And so we're going to look at these verses, the second half of chapter 13 today, just briefly, uh, because while we'll touch on some of the, sim some of the symbolism, uh, we're not going to try and pinpoint exactly who it might be referring to in our day. We're not going to try and pinpoint um, any of the specifics that may be there that maybe one day we'll know and maybe one day we won't. Uh, but we want to make sure that we understand the focal point of this passage, that it might give us certain comfort in these uncertain times. And so if you have your Bibles, please follow along as we read Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. 
It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Well, we're not going to spend a ton of time today talking about symbolism. Uh, we do need to discuss some of it right here at the beginning. Two weeks ago with chapter 12, we talked about how uh, chapter 12 was, was like a fairy tale, uh, telling the story of God's redemptive history through this story of a woman, a child, and a dragon. And then last week in the first half of chapter 13, we talked about how the first half of chapter 13 was kind of like an allegory. Uh, how it kind of told us uh, what uh, history was going to be like between the first and second coming of Christ as these antichrists, the spirit of antichrist, was going to go out into the earth. Um, and we might be able to see that story played out even in our own time. And many Christians throughout history would be able to see it play out even in their own time. And some of that carries over here into the second half of chapter 13. But there's also this idea of a parody or a satire happening as well in this second half of chapter 13. Because what we see here is really a parody of the Trinity and also a parody of the church throughout these end times. You have the parody of the Trinity where now you have this, this dragon uh, and the first beast who was slain but seemed to be raised from the dead. And now this uh, second beast that comes out of the earth who uh, leads in the worship of the first beast. And so you really have this satanic trinity occurring throughout the church age where there is the devil and this first beast, which we saw as being the state last week, and then this second beast uh, who leads in the worship. And so the first beast that we saw last week is really this parody of the sun, and this second beast today is this parody of the Holy Spirit. But then what you also see, uh, since we see the, the worship of the second beast, the worship of this uh, parody of the Son, uh, you also see the parody of the church that we saw back in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. And you see a lot of the similar parallels, even similar miracles being performed uh, by the worshipers of the beast and by the church from back in chapter 11. And so that's the, the context for Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, is really Revelation chapter 11, uh, the church throughout the church age in Revelation chapter 11. And now you see here in chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, uh, the unbelieving world throughout the church age as it worships uh, and is led in worship 
of, of a false God and this false trinity that takes place. And so really, although we put a lot of emphasis on trying to figure out what the mark of the beast might be or who the beast might be, who that Antichrist figure might be, uh, just like we saw last week that the focal point wasn't necessarily on who the Antichrist was, but in how the church responds to that spirit of the Antichrist. Similarly here, the emphasis is not on what the mark of the beast might be or who the Antichrist is, but rather the focus is on the false prophets. Uh, again, we see that this is the false worship, the false prophets, the false witness, as opposed to the true witness that we saw back in chapter 11. And so very quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time here today, uh, but very quickly, I want to look at three aspects of false prophets by which we can know them uh, for the believer here in this world, uh, how we can identify those false prophets of the spirit of the Antichrist uh, that may even be infiltrating our churches, may even be infiltrating our circles. Uh, because what I think you see when you you read this is the, the exact, is the exact opposite of what we normally think. And so uh, we're going to look at three aspects of the false prophets. And the first of those is that false prophets are known by their voice. False prophets are known by their voice. In verse 11, John says that I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. First thing that we see of the, these false prophets is that they are trying to appear to be true. Uh, again, Satan was once an angel of light and comes disguised as an angel of light, of light. And his prophets do the same. They come appearing like a lamb. It has two horns like a lamb. And so what we see here is not so much the, the danger of something that is so clearly and obviously false. But what is actually anti-Christ that may appear Christ-like in a certain way, but something is off. And it has two horns like a lamb. It comes like a lamb. It might even come carrying the lamb's name. It might even come trying to sound like the lamb, trying to appear like a lamb. But we can discern that it's false when it opens its mouth to speak. It appears to be like the lamb, but when it opens its mouth to speak, it spoke like a dragon. It spoke like a dragon. Its voice did not sound like the voice of the lamb. Jesus in John chapter 10 says that his sheep know his voice. And so for believers living in these uncertain times, we should be able to discern a false prophet when he speaks. But unfortunately, I think the problem that a lot of us have is that a lot of us aren't even biblically literate enough to discern the voice of the lamb versus the voice of the dragon. We're not capable of hearing a voice and knowing whether it is Christ or Antichrist. And we are filming this. We are just a, a couple of weeks away from the presidential election. And I think you see that all the time with how quickly and easily we buy in to political figures, political parties, political agendas. 
how quickly we fall in line with people whose voices sound nothing like Christ's, whose voices sound nothing like the voice of God that we find in Scripture. And I think you see that uh, even in the way we respond to some then voices from within the church, voices from within the church who are calling out for justice and mercy, who are calling out for us to give uh, to, to, to listen to the weightier matters of the law and stop worrying about tithing from our dill and our cumin and our spice rack. Because we're not familiar enough with the voice of God in Scripture. And I think one of the things that can help us figure out what the lamb sounds like versus what the dragon sounds like is reading the Old Testament prophetic books. Again, the key to understanding Revelation is not newspaper headlines. It's the Old Testament. As we've said a number of times, Revelation contains almost as many allusions and references to the Old Testament as the rest of the New Testament does combined. Over and over and over again, John brings forth passages and symbols and references from the Old Testament, and especially the prophets into Revelation. And so if we're familiar with the prophets, then we know what a false prophet sounds like versus a true prophet. We know that it's the false prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. We know that it's a false prophet who speaks out for the status quo in order to establish his own necessity, his own financial well-being, his own power within the community. And we know that it's a true prophet who points out areas where God is being blasphemed, where the image of God, uh, other human beings are being desecrated. They point out where the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy, are being neglected in order for an outward pretense of pharisaical legalism. And if we are familiar with the voice of God throughout Scripture, then when a prophet, a preacher, a teacher opens his mouth to speak, we know whether it is the voice of God or whether it is the voice of the dragon. And of course, it is not coincidental that Satan here is depicted as the dragon. Uh, He is depicted elsewhere as a lion. He is depicted as a devourer, devourer. He is depicted as one who goes out and devours human beings. Whereas the lamb is one who does the opposite. Again, the context for all of Revelation is not so much the second coming, it's the cross. The lamb in almost every passage that we've seen throughout the book so far is the lamb who was slaughtered. And so the true prophet comes as Christ came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The true prophet comes not just looking like a lamb, but speaking like a lamb, bringing gospel truth. The dragon might very well use scripture. After all, Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness used scripture. But the voice is different. The voice tempts to power. The voice tempts to seize our own authority. 
The voice tempts us to avoid the cross, to avoid suffering in order that we might have glory here and now instead of calling us to embrace the cross and embrace suffering that we might have glory in the hereafter. And so false prophets are known by their voice. They mock, they slander, they lie. They do whatever is necessary to entrench their own power and their own strength, their own authority, their own glory. They come looking like a lamb, but they speak like a dragon. And so false prophets are known by their voice. Secondly, false prophets are known by their power. False prophets are known by their power. Starting in verse 12, the second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So false prophets are known by their power. And by this, I don't mean that by their, by their miraculous gifts, by their power to perform miracles. Because again, we saw that among true witnesses as well in Revelation chapter 11. And you see that throughout Scripture. Uh, the devil and his minions are able to counterfeit some miracles. You see that with Moses and Aaron and the uh, magicians and sorcerers in Egypt who were able at times to mimic some of the plagues in order uh, to keep Pharaoh's heart hardened. And you see that in the book of Acts where there's some, uh, some others who can perform miracles. And so it's not that they're known by their power to perform miracles. Rather, they are known by their power in terms of power is really what they're about. And again, this is the this, this sharp distinction between the lamb and the beast. The way of the lamb is the way of the cross. It is the way of sacrifice. It is the way of suffering. The way of the beast is the way of power. It is the way of authority. Notice that throughout this passage, the beast compels people. The beast makes people. The beast forces people to do things. And again, it's this parody of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. It's the, uh, the parody of this, the work of the Spirit and of the church. The Spirit is the one who, who leads people to worship of the Son. Now, the church is not uh, the, uh, does not go out during the church age, or at least should not go out in the church age and compel by physical force, by the sword, worship of the Son. Rather, the church preaches its message. It preaches the gospel, the message of the cross, and the Spirit leads people into belief. But here in the parody of the Trinity, uh, the, uh, the second beast goes out 
and compels, forces people under threat of death to worship that parody of the sun, that beast that had come out of the sea. And so false prophets are known by their power. They are known not for the way of the lamb, not for the way of the cross, but by the way of the beast. And again, just like we should know a false prophet by their voice, we should know a false prophet by what they're ultimately seeking after, how they are ultimately operating. Do they preach the gospel, uh, even suffering themselves in doing so, and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring people to belief? Or do they operate under threat of force, coercing and compelling, manipulating, forcing people into belief or obedience? Do they put people to death as the false prophets do here in Revelation 13? Or do they themselves lay down their lives as the true witnesses do in Revelation chapter 11? And see, I think passages like this confuse us because passages like this really reveal how much we've compromised already with the state, how much we've compromised with the threat of the sword. See, we're uncomfortable with this, and so we want to create all this symbolism. We want to try and do all those calculations to avoid the force of the passage, which is telling us, urging us to compare the way of the lamb and the way of the beast. And we don't really want to do that because it will force us to admit how often we take the way of the beast, how often we trust in uh, carnal weapons in an attempt to wage a spiritual battle instead of being content with the spiritual ones we've been given. How much we do coerce and compel, manipulate, control, instead of preaching the gospel. How much we use people for our own benefit instead of laying down our lives as the Lamb did. See, false prophets are known not only by what they speak, but how they live what their lives are pointed towards, the means that they use to propagate their message and not merely the content of the message itself. What the book of Revelation uh, forces us to consider is that there is no compromise between the way of the lamb and the way of the beast. There is no compromise between the cross of Jesus Christ and the sword of the state. We can have one or the other. We will either speak the message of the cross or we will speak the message of the state. We will either operate uh, using the the cross as our uh, main weapon, so to speak, as the, the way that we change hearts and change society, or we will look at the sword as our method of doing so. There is no in between. And that is the the point of this passage, is that you either have to be willing to die for siding with the lamb, or to take up the sword and kill, and therefore take the side of the beast. What, uh, What Revelation 13 is forcing us to recognize, and there are allusions here to Nebuchadnezzar raising up uh, the, the idol, which then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
refused to worship and were thrown in the fiery furnace and God saved them from that. But the, the point here is that those who don't worship the idol here aren't saved from the furnace. They go to their death. And it's not necessarily saying that everyone who stands against the state, the worship of the state, will die. But we have to be willing to do so. The way of the Lamb is being willing to lay down our lives. Just as we saw in the past two weeks in chapter 12 and into chapter 13, that it is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that we overcome. For we do not love our lives, even to the point of death. And there are, just as the, the beast comes and has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon, so even in its method, there will be times that it will look counterfeit. A number of years ago, I preached through the Ten Commandments. Uh, and as I was doing some study on the Ten Commandments, and specifically the Second Commandment, not to create an idol, and which really deals with how we worship God and not necessarily just who we're worshiping. And, and really, the, one of the passages uh, that I think really connects is when Aaron creates the golden calf and leads Israel in worship of the calf. And if you go back to Exodus and read that passage, the Israelites call the calf Yahweh, and they worship the calf for delivering them out of Egypt. And so... They are worshiping God by name, and they are worshiping God for delivering them from what he had saved them from. The problem was that they were worshiping like the nations. They were worshiping like the people around them, like the world. And brothers and sisters, we so frequently do that. We praise the name of Jesus and we praise him for saving us from our sins. But then we go out and we live and we worship with the ways of the world, picking up the sword of the state. We have the cross in one hand and the flag in the other and don't see the idolatry that is inherent in doing that. But Revelation 13 forces us to see that there is no compromise. It is either the flag or the cross. It is never both. It is either the way of the lamb or it is the way of the beast. There is no middle ground. Because thirdly, not only are false prophets known by their voice and by their power, false prophets are known by their worship. False prophets are known by their worship. Chapter ends with, of course, the most famous part of it. Uh, starting in verse 16, it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. And of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, these verses have been uh, so widely applied throughout church history. Um, everything from credit cards to social security numbers, 
to corporate logos on clothing, um, to political figures. Um, back in the 80s, there were some who thought Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because his first, middle, and last name all had six uh, English letters in them, um, which, is not, which it can't be because the number here is not 666. It is 666. Um, and there's clearly supposed to be a person behind this number. Uh, it, is the, it is the number of a person. Uh, but the thing we have to keep in mind is that this book was written to a first century audience. And so way back when we started this series, I made mention that whatever revelation means, it cannot mean on the one hand something that only first century readers would understand. But it also, on the other hand, cannot mean something that first century readers could not hope to understand. And so there is no way that uh, this number is intended to specify only a specific end time figure, um, whether it be Ronald Reagan or Mikhail Gorbachev or Pope Francis or any of the number, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, uh, any of the people who Christians in recent decades have thought might be the Antichrist, because the first century Christians had no idea who any of those people were. And so uh, it may be that ultimately the final Antichrist will have uh, a name that somehow fits this number, but that's not the point. Um, and there are, uh, have always been a number of expl explanations. Of course, Nero Caesar uh, does line up with the number 666, taking letters for numbers. Um, and I do think that is probably one aspect of it, uh, especially given that the beast in the first half of chapter 13 is clearly modeled on Nero. Um, not because Nero is somehow going to be raised from the dead and come back, but again, that idea that the state, uh, the kingdom of this world, opposed to the kingdom of God. And of course, there may be the aspect as well that 666 is kind of that, that number of man or number of evil, again, falling short of the perfected number of God. Um, but whatever that number is supposed to mean, the thing we definitely need to grasp is that we cannot accidentally take that number as a mark. We cannot take that number as a mark accidentally. This is an intentional taking of a mark. This is about worship. And so the coronavirus vaccine is not the mark of, a beast, of the beast. Because that is not, it's not something you could take accidentally while trying to take something else. It's not something that we are going to accidentally take on. This is clearly modeled uh, after, again, uh, it's, a, it's a counterfeit, it's a parody, it's a satire of what we see elsewhere in Scripture. And so, of course, the, the Shema was worn as a mark uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, which has been referenced repeatedly throughout this book, uh, a Hebrew letter was the mark of true believers uh, who did not um, side with Babylon against God. Uh, and so there's these marks throughout Scripture. And that seems to be what this mark is intending to parody. And so this is about worship. It's about loyalty. It's about choice. 
This is about final rejection of the lamb. This is about fully and finally rejecting the lamb, his cross, his way of life, to follow the beast, to worship his idol, to take up the sword of the state. This is about worship. This is about who we fully and finally side with. And this was meant to be a comfort. It was meant to be an encouragement and perhaps even a challenge to believers living in the first century and believers living throughout the church age. A reminder that there is only one way. There is only one choice. We cannot sit the fence for very long. We can either take up the cross or take up the sword. We could either side with the lamb or side with the beast. And so I know this is difficult for 21st century American Christians to hear, especially in a time such as this, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a presidential election. But brothers and sisters, the mark of the beast is more likely to be the American flag than it is to be the coronavirus vaccine. It is more likely to be a red Make America Great Again hat than it is to be the coronavirus vaccine. It is uh, more likely to be a Biden-Harris yard sign than it is the coronavirus vaccine. Because it is about loyalty. It's about worship. It's about what are we trusting in to deliver us? What are we trusting in to renew this, this world? What are we trusting in for our ultimate good? And that is a choice that we make. It is not something we accidentally take on. Because eventually, push comes to shove. Eventually, we will have to decide whether to side with the state or to side with the Lamb. We will have to decide whether we want the cross and the self-sacrifice and self-giving death even that it calls us to or whether we want the sword of the state by which we can chop down our enemies. It is a choice whether we are going to preach the message of the gospel as man's only hope, or whether we are going to preach our political agenda. It's a choice whether we are going to follow the way of the lamb or follow the way of the beast. Because the way of the lamb we are told to be prepared for death at the hands of the beast and his followers. Doesn't mean that we all will have to give our lives, but we should be prepared to do so. And if not our lives, then perhaps our rights or our friendships or our families or our political preferences because we cannot hold on to the cross while we're holding on to all of these worldly things. We cannot wear the cross as our mark while simultaneously wearing the mark of the beast. And so brothers and sisters, especially now, um, this will air, I think, two weeks before the presidential election. This is the time to consider what it is 
that we are worshiping. This is the time to consider the voices that we are listening to. This is the way that this is the time to consider the way that we are following, what we are trusting in, what we are wielding as the agent of change, how we are treating the people around us. And this is the time to consider who it is that we're worshiping. Because we can either worship the lamb who was slain, or we can worship the state who comes with all the promises of the lamb, looking just like the lamb, but speaking like a dragon. We can either worship Jesus Christ, or we can worship the United States of America. We can either worship the lamb, or we can worship the, the donkey or the elephant, our preferred political party. But we can't worship both. And of course, the mark of the beast is full and final rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, we are all mixed bags as far as this goes. We all struggle with loyalty to Christ. We all struggle putting our full faith in Jesus Christ. We all struggle with, with holding on to idols after we come to faith. But it may just be that God is using this time, that God is using the COVID-19 pandemic, that he is using the social unrest going on in our country in 2020, that he is using the politically charged environment of a presidential election to point out our idols, to point out the ways in which we have been tempted to take the mark of the beast in order that he might call us back to the cross, call us back to the lamb who was slain, to hear his voice, to know his voice, and to deliver his message. Thank you for joining us as we finished up Revelation chapter 13. Next week, we will look at Revelation chapter 14.